Hello there, my darling Jack of All Graves family. Corrigan here, coming to you from Barcelona, Spain. Listen, I'm going to level with you. The Wi-Fi in Europe has not been super reliable, and so Anna and I have not had a chance to record a new episode for you. However, I want to make sure that you're getting your Joag content this summer. I know there's been a lot of upheaval on this show, and I am so thankful for you all sticking by us in spite of everything going on right now. As such, for now, I'm posting an episode of the Jack of All Graves radio show, which airs every week on Radio Free Montclair, Montclair, New Jersey, which you can check out at RadioFreeMontclair.org. Now, you can listen to those live every week, or if you subscribe to our Ko-Fi, you can also get the whole archive of every episode of the radio show, if you enjoy this. If you hate this, um, please don't tell me about it. My, my feelings will be hurt. But anyways, I hope you enjoy this special episode. Hopefully we'll be back this week, but if not, I hope this can tide you over until I get back to the United States. Once again, I love you all. Thanks for being here for the Joag journey. Greetings, Radio Free Montclair darlings. It's time for Jack of All Graves Radio. I'm your host, Corrigan Vaughn, here to take you on a cozy little journey through some very dark things. So, grab yourself a beverage and gather in close as I tell you true tales of the horrors of being human. If I showed you photos of the event I'm about to describe, you'd think you were looking at a natural disaster. Perhaps the 1906 earthquake that leveled San Francisco, for example. The devastation is staggering, the kind of sight reserved for the aftermath of those events we deem acts of God. God had nothing to do with this deadly event. No, man had only himself to blame. The event occurred in Boston, Massachusetts in 1919 and the destructive force that led to these sites was a massive wave of molasses unleashed on the city's north end, 
killing 21 and injuring 150 people. See, Boston Harbor was an incredibly important commercial site in the early 20th century, had been pretty much since it was founded, which is why so much of the American Revolution is centered there. Trade between America and Europe used Boston as a hub, so the area was densely packed with both businesses and residences. And the North End in particular was home predominantly to Italian immigrants. While it's pretty heavily commercialized and touristy at this point, to this day, it's still considered the vibrant Italian-American center of the city. At that point in time, though, we're talking immediately post-World War I, and the distrust of all the marginally darker Catholic immigrants in the U.S. paired with anxiety about Italian anarchist sabotage meant that Italians weren't treated with a whole lot of respect, and were instead met with a great deal of hostility and suspicion. People being mean to Italians, by the way, is how we got stuck worshipping Christopher Columbus over here for the past century and a half. So, you know, be careful who you bully, or they might make a folk hero out of a genocidal maniac, I guess. But anyway... We find ourselves in the North End on January 15, 1919, in the shadow of a tank holding some 2.3 million gallons of molasses. The molasses came in on ships from the Caribbean, and would then be transported to a distillery to be used in making rum. This tank, however, was absolutely built for a good time and not a long time, and it started showing weakness pretty much from the moment they started heaping the sticky stuff into it. People nearby would report that the tank would shudder and groan when filled. There were visible leaks from its sides, from which local children would bring pails to fill up and take home. These were obvious hazards, but being the 1910s, when the owners of the tank at U.S. Industrial Alcohol were alerted to these issues by their workers, they decided it would be too costly to fix it, so... And, and I'm not kidding with you here. They painted the tank brown so the leaks wouldn't stand out as much. One worker brought actual shards of steel that had broken off the tank into the treasurer's office to show the danger, to which the treasurer responded, I don't know what you want me to do. The tank still stands. Engineer Ronald Mayville has studied the flood and surmises that the tank was probably built with the specifications you would use to hold water. But Molasses is a whole lot heavier than water. Further, the rivet design on the tank was flawed, elevating the danger even more. Neither of these mistakes were based on ignorance. They had the know-how at the time to make an appropriate tank. But according to Mayville, the tank had been built quickly in the winter of 1915 to meet rising demand for industrial alcohol, which could be distilled from molasses and sold to weapons company, who used it to make dynamite and other explosives for use during World War I. So around lunchtime that day in January, the tank finally gave out, and that two million gallons of molasses was released in a wave 15 feet high and 160 feet wide, traveling at a speed of 35 miles per hour. As any wave of that size would be, especially in the middle of a city where there should not be a wave of any kind, it was massively destructive outright. It lifted houses off of their foundations and slammed them against other buildings. Buildings collapsed 
as did the elevated rail that brought trains through town. It swept up people, horses, and cars, and that was only the first part of its destruction. Fluid dynamics expert Dr. Nicole Sharp explains that there were basically two stages to the deadly molasses flood. The first she calls the tsunami. She explains, molasses is 1.5 times heavier than water. It's very dense. The tank piled so high with molasses stored a large amount of potential energy. When the tank ruptured, all the potential energy became kinetic energy. Quote, the fact that molasses is extremely viscous doesn't matter for the first 60 to 90 seconds. The inertia is so much more powerful than the forces that can be moved by the viscosity. So while generally molasses is super slow moving, that stored up energy meant it burst through those walls guns ablazing before its own viscosity caught up with it. When that wave hit, quote, people's bones were crushed, their bodies thrown onto buildings and train cars. Many survivors had broken backs and fractured skulls. So when we talk about 150 injured, we're not just talking about people getting up and walking away a little sticky. These are life-altering injuries. And then you get the second phase, in which the inertia runs out and the molasses slows, presenting an entirely different problem. It's now thick and sticky, so people who were trapped in it not only had a difficult time moving, if they swallowed it, they'd be choking and gasping for air. Drowning in molasses is like drowning in water cranked to 11. It's pressing down on your chest and lungs. It's pressing you against things. And if you swallow it, you can't just spit it out. It suffocates you. That it was January only made it worse, as the cold air made the molasses even thicker and harder to move. The majority of the people that died in the molasses flood died from asphyxiation. A horrendous way to go. Now, circling back to the fact that this is the north end of Boston at a time of great suspicion of Italian immigrants, the defense attorney for USIA, Charles Chote, tried to blame Italian anarchists for what had happened. There was a deep paranoia about anarchist activity in the area among white Bostonians, of which Italians were not counted at the time. So Chote figured he could use it to shift suspicion from the company's obvious negligence. This was also an era in which the bosses generally got away with this stuff. The Supreme Court was pushing for lax regulation of an industry that made it so that companies avoided liability in court when terrible stuff that was very much their fault happened. The molasses flood proved to be something of a turning point, though. Colonel Hugh Ogden was appointed as the auditor of the case in the Massachusetts Superior Court, and Ogden was big into justice. He found the company fully responsible, and ordered a payout of $7 million, equivalent in today's money to about $111 million, setting a precedent that negligence on the part of companies was not to be glossed over, and that workers and others affected had the legal right to compensation for the tragic consequences. We'll be right back. Someone to put you out of that ditch, you're out of luck. You're out of luck. 
ship is sinking. The ship is sinking. The ship is sinking. There's a leak, there's a leak in the boiler room. The poor, the lame, the blind. Who are the ones that we kept in charge? Killers, thieves, and warriors. Gods away, gods away, gods away on business, business. Gods away, gods away, gods away on business, business. Digging up the tank with the shovel and the pick, it's a job. It's a job. Money mood rising with the plague and the fun. Turn the mob. Turn the mob. It's all over. It's all over. It's all over. And there's a leak, there's a leak in the boiler room. The poor, the lame, the blind. Jack of All Graves Radio on Radio Free Montclair. Once again, I'm your host, Corrigan Vaughn, here to tell you true stories from our very dark timeline. So now, back to the void. On August 15, 1984, Abdo Nkanjuani was biking northward to the village of Jindun, near Lake Monoon in Cameroon, when he descended into a dip in the road. He saw, parked next to the road, a pickup truck he knew to belong to a local priest. But upon inspection, he found the priest's dead body on the ground next to the truck. As he continued his journey, he came across yet another corpse. A man's body, still astride a stalled motorcycle. And in his own words, he knew something terrible has happened. He continued on in a trance-like state and soon became too weak to bike. So he continued on foot. He passed a herd of dead sheep. He passed stalled vehicles, the occupants all dead. Ascending further uphill, he ran into his friend Adamu, who was walking toward him. He wanted to warn Adamu of the danger and tell him to turn back, but he lost the ability to speak. Quote, As though in a dream, he shook Adamu's hand silently, and the two continued in opposite directions. 
Nkanjuani managed to make it to his destination alive, but Adamu and 36 others traveling that low stretch of road at the time weren't so lucky. People didn't know what to make of the mysterious deaths with no obvious cause. Was it a chemical attack? Some sort of government conspiracy? A similar event would occur just two years later on an even more massive scale, about 60 miles north of Monoon, by the shores of Lake Neos. Ephraim Che lived in a mud brick house on a cliff above Neos, which, like Monoon, is a crater lake in Cameroon. Both are located on the Cameroon Volcanic Line, or CVL, which is a 950-mile-long chain of volcanoes and volcanic crater lakes extending from the Gulf of Guinea into Cameroon and Nigeria. And by the way, no one knows exactly why, geologically, there are volcanoes there. There are theories, but apparently it's a super weird spot for them. Anyway, it was about 9pm on August 21st, 1986, when Che heard a rumbling that sounded like a rock slide. He then saw a strange white mist rising up from Lake Neos. Feeling a little sick, he told his four children that it looked like rain, and then he went to bed. Meanwhile, Halima Suli, a cowherd, and her four children had retired for the night at their home down by the actual lakeshore. She heard the rumbling and said it sounded like the shouting of many voices. Following the rumble, quote, a great wind roared through her extended family's small compound of thatched huts, and she promptly passed out like a dead person, she says. In the morning, when he awoke, Che headed downhill. He noticed that Neos, which was usually crystal blue, was now a dull red. He noticed that a waterfall he would normally pass was dry. And then he noticed it was eerily quiet. No birds, no insects, no people. No sounds at all, but silence. As you can imagine, this freaked him out, and he was reportedly so scared that his knees were shaking. He ran along the lake and came across Halima Suli, the woman who had passed out after the wind blew through her home. She was shrieking, and she'd torn off her clothing in grief. She started shouting to him, Ephraim, come here, why are these people lying here? Why won't they move again? In front of him, Che saw the bodies of Suli's children, 31 other members of her family, and their 400 cattle. Suli kept trying to shake her lifeless father awake. On that day, there were no flies on the dead, says Che. The flies were dead too. Che kept on downhill to the village of Lower Neos, and there he found that nearly every one of the village's 1,000 residents was dead, including his parents, siblings, uncles, and aunts. He believed it to be the end of the world. In total, around 1,800 people died that night, and any of the victims were found right where they'd normally be at that time, suggesting they died on the spot. Quote, Bodies lay near cooking fires, clustered in doorways and in bed. Some people who had lain unconscious for more than a day finally awoke, saw their family members lying dead, and then committed suicide. I'm sure you're wondering what the heck happened, because this is something straight out of a horror movie. A rumble, a fog, a wind, and then everybody just dies where they stand? Interestingly, folklore was somewhat helpful in trying to figure out what killed everyone, or at least that there was some sort of natural cause, and maybe this wasn't the first time it occurred. For example, people in the region will talk of magical springs, where as soon as a small animal like a toad or bird approaches, they just drop dead. Geologists realize that these haunted springs are hot springs with 
super high levels of volcanic gases, and they figured at the bottom of Lake Neo, similar springs exist, releasing large quantities of toxic gases into the lake. Other folktales, which are referred to as geomyths, include stories of haunted lakes that will explode or drown people, which could very well be based on past disasters similar to what happened in 1986. A natural phenomenon was attributed to supernatural powers like gods, spirits, or enraged ancestors. For a long time, the shores of Lake Neos were considered haunted and taboo. Only later, people ignoring the local traditions and taboos settled there. Cameroonian myths reserve a special category for lakes, which are said to be the homes of ancestors and spirits and sometimes a source of death. According to legends documented by anthropologist Eugenia Shanklin of the College of New Jersey, a lake may rise, sink, explode, or even change locations. Certain ethnic groups decree that houses near lakes be erected on high ground, perhaps in the collective memory as a defense against disaster. Thus, groups with more historical attachment to the area, like Che and his family, lived in a safe zone up high where the mysterious fog didn't affect them as badly, whereas newer groups who'd arrived around the 1960s and that didn't pass on the tradition of building high up, built along the lakeshore and died. So there was some sense that Cameroonians had known that the lake could be a disaster area, but they didn't know why. Scientists descended upon Lake Neos in a rush. This was a huge disaster, and they needed to figure out what happened so that they could be sure it wasn't about to happen again. And as you can imagine, many of them were also very scared because they were about to go try to do tests and take samples and so on, but they didn't know if the lake would suddenly just belch out a death cloud and kill them too. They initially thought that some long dormant volcano had erupted at the bottom of the crater, but what they found was something they'd never actually seen before though there were whispers something like this could exist. Haralder Sigurdsson, a volcanologist from the University of Rhode Island, had actually gone to Lake Monoon and found no signs of a volcanic eruption. He detected no indication of temperature increase in the water, no disturbance of the lake bed, no sulfur compounds, but he did find something super weird when he took a water sample bottle from the lake depths. The lid popped right off. The water, as it turned out, was loaded with carbon dioxide. The thing about CO2 is, at high concentration, it displaces oxygen. Air that is 5% carbon dioxide snuffs candles and car engines. A 10% carbon dioxide level causes people to hyperventilate, grow dizzy, and eventually lapse into a coma. At 30%, people gasp and drop dead. It's also colorless and odorless. Sigurdsson realized that carbon dioxide from magma degassing deep under Lake Monoon had percolated up into the lake's bottom layers of water for years or centuries, creating a giant hidden time bomb. The pent-up gas dissolved in the water, he believed, suddenly had exploded, releasing a wave of concentrated carbon dioxide. He wrote up his findings, calling the phenomenon a hitherto unknown natural hazard that could wipe out entire towns. And in 1986, a few months before the Neos disaster, he submitted his study to Science, the prestigious U.S. journal. Science rejected the paper as far-fetched, and the theory remained unknown except to a few specialists. Then Lake Neos blew up, killing 50 times more people than at Monoon. As it turns out, Lake Neos is really deep, 682 feet, 
and rests atop a porous, carrot-shaped deposit of volcanic rubble, a subaqueous pile of boulders and ash left from old eruptions. Carbon dioxide may remain from this old activity, or it could be forming now, in magma far below. Wherever it comes from, underwater springs apparently transport the gas upward and into the deep lake bottom water. There, under pressure from the lake water above, the gas accumulates. Pressure keeps the CO2 from coalescing into bubbles, exactly as the cap on a seltzer bottle keeps soda from fizzing. If the lake were farther north or south, seasonal temperature swings would mix the water, preventing carbon dioxide buildup. Cold weather causes surface waters to become dense and sink, displacing lower layers upward. In spring, the process reverses. But in equatorial lakes like Neos and Monoon, the deep layers seldom mix with the top layers, and the deepest layers may stagnate for centuries. Something must have detonated the built-up carbon dioxide, and theories include boulders crashing into the lake, perhaps the rock slide Ephraim Che heard, or a sudden drop in air temperature causing surface water to cool and abruptly sink, or a strong wind that set off a wave and mixed the layers. Whatever the cause, water saturated with carbon dioxide was displaced upward from the depths. As it rose and pressure lessened, dissolved carbon dioxide bubbled out of solution and the bubbles drew more gas-laden water in their wake, and so on, until the lake exploded like a huge shaken seltzer bottle. To try to keep this from happening again, scientists decided to run a pipe from the lake's deepest water layer to the surface gradually releasing the gas to disperse quickly and harmlessly in the air. In theory, such a pipe, once primed, would carry the pressurized water from the depths and shoot it into the air like a natural geyser, a controlled explosion that could be sustained for years. By 2001, they'd created this pipe system and immediately just such a geyser burst forth. But it's expensive and there are concerns that the one pipe is not enough. As such, we can't be entirely sure that Lake Neos has claimed its last victims. Okay.
Thanks for listening to Jack of All Graves Radio on Radio Free Montclair. For more content like this, check out the Jack of All Graves podcast everywhere podcasts can be found, or hit us up on our website, jackofallgraves.com. The intro music was Imperium by Ghost. The music break was God's Away on Business by Tom Waits. The closing song is It's Too Late to Love You Now by Men of Low Moral Fiber. My name is Corrigan Vaughn, and you should stay spooky, my friends. <laughs>